Ronan. <laughs> that's, 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 I'm gonna say Ronan is someone. Ronan. Like, Can you roll your Look. R's? R- <laughs> Ronan. There you go. Ronan. I can't, I can't roll my R's. Someone by the other. Ro- <laughs> Much to the consternation of my Spain-based Spanish teacher, I cannot roll my R's. You just gotta practice. It's. I don't know. Yeah, practicing. If you don't, I think either you can do it or you can't do it. Sorry, Emily. Ronan is summoned by the. Okay, now I'm laughing, <laughs> thinking of you trying to roll your R's. Ronan. That's about all I can do. The one, the one roll. Ronan. Nope. And see, it embarrasses me because I can't do it. That's so cute. Ronan. Hey, kind of. This is We Can Do This All Day, episode 12, review of Guardians of the Galaxy. You ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. Hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And everybody, welcome to the show. It's another glorious Friday night in the nation's capital. Emily, how you doing? Good. We're back to the way it belongs. We've been um, on a bit of a hiatus lately. As of this recording, the Winter Soldier episode dropped just a couple days earlier, but we recorded that like five weeks ago. Yeah, we recorded that the day that Falcon and the Winter Soldier started, and we're recording this one the day that Falcon and the Winter Soldier ended. Exactly, five weeks later. But we are back this week, and we've got Guardian of the Galaxy, our review of that movie all ready to go. But first, the MCU news ticker was working, I don't want to say overtime, but it was it was churning out some stuff the last week. We've got the news a couple weeks ago that Black Widow has been bumped one last time, we hope, and will now open on July the 9th this year in both theaters and on Disney Plus's premier access tier, which I kind of had the feeling was going to have to happen anyway. So if you don't feel like going to the theater and you don't mind dropping $30 on a movie that you watch in the comfort of your own living room, you will be able to watch Black Widow in the comfort of your own home on July 9th. So that's exciting one way or the other. As a result of that, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings gets bumped to September the 3rd of this year because it was supposed to open up on July the 9th. It will be in theaters at the very least. And we just got our first trailer this week. I was very, very stoked about that. It looks really good. It's a martial arts movie on a Disney budget, so I'm pleased with that. We also got a new trailer for the Loki series, which premieres Friday, June 11th on Disney+. Plus. Got sort of a weird time travel adventure in store for the MCU's favorite trickster. I'm actually really excited for Loki. I was kind of weirded out by the first trailer, and then the more I've seen and the more I've heard of it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be fun. I want to start placing bets on how many times Owen Wilson says, wow, because that's just my favorite. So, and as Emily said earlier, we are recording this on the day of the season finale. We hope it's just a season finale and not a series finale of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There has been talk of a second season. Without giving anything away, I will say that I was thoroughly pleased with this series. I really enjoyed it. It was very thought-provoking. It was very entertaining. It was pretty much everything I wanted it to be. What say you, Emily? Yes, it was very good. I need Bucky to date that cute girl at the sushi bar. I don't think that's giving anything away. Right? No, no, I don't think so. I think that's. I think it's that's, not important to the plot or anything. It's just something that I need for my own well-being. That would make you feel 
That would make me feel like maybe Satisfying. he's going to be okay because I've been a little worried about him this entire series. He's been through a lot and he goes through a lot on this show. Uh, maybe, who knows, maybe one of these days, maybe sometime next year we can do that. We can do like six mini episodes since they're only about an hour each. It's something we should think about putting on the docket for next year. Yeah, you, I'd be down. You, you, you do it, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what kind of question is that? Do you, do you want to Emily you? talking about Bucky? Who do you want to, do you want to, I mean, do you, do you want to, I mean, do you want to talk about Bucky? You know, you don't, God, you don't have to. I, you know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not holding a gun to your head or anything. Gosh, but, it's know. just like, it's so hard to talk about Bucky because I just don't even, who even has, who even ca ca uh, cares, you know? <laughs> Nobody, it, no, it's, nah. <laughs> One of these days, if I should ever become influential enough to get to know Hollywood types, if I could ever arrange to have like Sebastian Stan show up at your workplace or better yet, like show up on your doorstep just to say hi, I'd have to like have three cell phone cameras out to film your reaction because it would just be beyond priceless. The world might actually explode if that happened. So something to think about for later on. But we got to think about what we're doing tonight, don't we? Guardians of the Galaxy, the first foray into the Marvel Cosmic Universe, opened on August 1st, 2014 in the U.S. It stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Lee Pace, Michael Rooker, Karen Gillan, Jaiman Hansu, John C. Riley, Glenn Close, and Benicio Del Toro. The film was written by James Gunn and Nicole Perlman. This was only the third feature film directed by James Gunn. Prior to Guardians, he directed the relatively low-budget black comedy horror sci-fi film Slither, which I believe Michael Rooker was in, and also the relatively low-budget black comedy superhero film Super. Before that, he wrote a couple of the Scooby-Doo films and a couple of splatter films for the legendary Troma Entertainment Company. At the box office, the film's original budget was $195.9 million, but they went over budget by about $36 million for a grand total of roughly $232.3 million. And apparently mainly that was for paying the production staff. But it's all okay. It all comes out in the laundry because the film went on to gross $772.8 million. That is not chump change. And it was one of the highest grossing films of 2014. A lot of people may have forgotten that Guardians was a pretty risky film for Marvel at that time. It's based on what was, at least at that time, a fairly obscure Marvel Comics title that most people who weren't comics comics fans probably had not heard of. I remember myself reading a whole bunch of articles prior to the film's release and the overall tone in many of them was, what the hell is this? It looks kind of weird. You know, maybe it'll be good, but I don't know. Since then, of course, we've had a grand total of two Guardians of the Galaxy films. They've appeared in two Avengers movies, and they have become arguably one of the most popular sub-franchises in all of the MCU. Our overall impressions of the film. I loved this movie when it first came out, and I still do. There was just something really unique about it at the time. You've got this sci-fi action flick that's also funny and has interesting characters that were quirky, but... Not too quirky for my tastes. All the characters are like kind of a jerk, but they were all still relatable. And of course, you've got the soundtrack full of all this great 60s and 70s pop tunes. From the moment that first trailer dropped, everyone just kind of knew we were getting something really different from Marvel. Having had some knowledge of the comics already, I was vaguely familiar with Rocket and Groot. So, you know, the idea of a gun-toting talking raccoon and his friend, the walking talking tree, were not as odd to me as they were to a lot of filmgoers. But still, to actually see them rendered on the screen was a delight, especially since this was the first time that we were getting our first full-on hardcore taste of the Marvel Comics cosmic stuff, the stuff that takes place out in deep space. So the first Guardians movie is in that realm of Marvel movies that I have seen at least once. So like Doctor Strange is in there. Well, 
most of Doctor You've Strange. You've seen most of Doctor Strange. I've seen like up until the last 20 minutes. Incredible Hulk was in there. And so this is another movie that like is enjoyable. Like I thought it was fun. While I was watching it for the episode, I did remember having seen it before. But I'm kind of just lukewarm about it. I don't hate it, but I'm kind of just like, eh. You know, when this movie came out, it definitely, to me, felt like the knockoff Avengers. Because I just didn't know. Like, I'm not a comics person, really. I didn't know anything about them. I didn't really know anything about what they were trying to do with the future of the MCU. Like, I didn't know anything about Infinity War or Endgame or any of that stuff that happens later. So the connection the Guardians had to the rest of the MCU didn't really make it into my bubble at the time. So I just didn't care. Mm -hmm. But like, it's a fun movie. I think Rocket is a jerk. And obviously, we'll talk about that. But I do like Rocket. I understand where Rocket's coming from. He's supposed to be a jerk. Yeah. And like, I do like Chris Pratt as an actor. I think he's, you know, him as a person. We can talk about it at a different time. But his character portrayals, I think, are really good. And I like Karen Gillan. I like all the stuff that's in the movie. It's just, you know, I was sort of lukewarm. So I guess, like, in terms of rankings, I put this at 16. You know, the way you were talking, I thought you were going to have it 19 or... Oh, no, because I don't hate it. Okay. 16 is fair. I have it at 11, just barely in my top 50% of MCU movies. It's not my favorite. It's far from my favorite. But we go back to, you know, rewatchability, which we established that in our first episode. That's kind of my gold standard for how I rank these movies and which ones I think are enjoyable and which ones aren't. I've seen Guardians. I can't count how many times. I've seen Winter Soldier more, but I've seen Guardians quite a few times. It's just a very, very fun movie. And there's a lot of good stuff in it. And they did set up some important things very well that come into play in the future of the MCU, most notably in Infinity War and Endgame. Now that I've seen it and actually paid attention, like I do think it is important to the rest of the MCU. Aside from that post credit scene in Thor The Dark World, it's the first time that the Infinity Stones are referenced kind of publicly in the film. So if for no other reason, it's important. Shall we begin? The film opens up on Earth in 1988 as we see a very young Peter Quill listening to music on a Sony Walkman while in the waiting area of a hospital. He's ushered into a room where his mother, Meredith, lies dying, surrounded by family members. She gives him a wrapped present, which goes immediately into his backpack. She tells him not to open it until she's gone. She also tells him that his grandfather will take care of him until his daddy comes back. She asks Peter to take her hand, and Peter, obviously very upset, can't bring himself to do it and then moments later she's gone distraught peter runs out of the hospital and into the foggy night alone okay let's just go ahead and get this out of the way now we talked ad nauseum on our last episode about what makes you sad emily the bucky sadness and are steve and bucky ever going to be friends again for me this scene that i just described is absolutely positively the saddest moment in all of the mcu nothing else nothing 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 spoiler alert not tony dying not natasha dying not uh, bucky dying definitely not bucky dying not the snap nothing is sadder to me than watching this young boy having to watch his mother die in front of him to this day it's a really hard scene for me to watch and i I talk about the rewatchability factor of this movie it's probably why i don't have the movie ranked a little bit higher in my rankings because the price you have to pay up front for enjoying the rest of it is kind of high it's like if someone on the team watched every pixar film before this and was like I know what to do. What if we combine Star Wars with Bambi Old Yeller up? And Nemo. I can't watch Up anymore. The opening scene of Up just took me out of it. I know you like that movie a lot, but I just can't. Anyway, I digress. And I it's pretty sad. It's sad. Out of nowhere, a spaceship appears 
and takes Peter away. Flash forward 26 years. Peter Quill, aka Star-Lord, lands on the planet Morag and makes his way towards what appears to be an ancient ruin. We interrupt this science fiction epic to bring you a music video. Seriously, we're having this serious Indiana Jones type moment when we're suddenly and unexpectedly being serenaded by the strains of Redbone's Come and Get Your Love. Even the camera work changes for the duration of the sequence. So now we have all these spinning crane shots and overhead shots. After that totally emotionally draining opening scene, it was such a relief to be able to smile as Quill is dancing around listening to the Walkman. Since he was abducted in 1988, his pop culture knowledge is obviously kind of locked in at that time period, which would explain why he seems to be channeling, you know, Michael Jackson during his dancing. Chris Pratt's got some nice moves, I think, and this scene does a great job giving us some inkling of what adult Peter is like without him having to actually say a word. I also like how they not so subtly convey to us, oh yeah, and he's got these really cool jet boots too. The only thing I don't like about his outfit is actually the Star-Lord mask, the weird red-eyed mask. Although I obviously, I understand why it's important. Like I know. May I ask what bothers you about it? It's just weird. It's the weird red eyes. What's the show on Nickelodeon? The Hidden Temple? Is that it? The game show? It reminds me of the, it reminds me of the, the totem in the Hidden Temple. Um, That may have been a bit after my time. But also, that's totally hilarious that he was able to keep that Walkman working for 26 years in space. Like, I know our tech now is meant to be obsolete within a few years, but I don't think I could keep anything going for 26 years. Walkman or not. I had two. My first one lasted about five years. They don't make them like they used to. They were generally well built, but I think mine did break in about five years, and then I got a refurbished one at a Sony outlet like a couple years later. But Also, I think Barit, the pink girl in his spaceship is wearing the shirt that he was wearing his last night on earth i think it is yeah it's got like a camp logo on it or something like that for how offbeat and sort of weird they play him off to be he's pretty good at keeping track of his stuff like 26 years a shirt a walkman all of his little troll dolls that were in his backpack the The present from his mom is still perfectly wrapped yeah it's got like a little it's frayed a little in the corners but overall it's in really good shape i I mean i can only assume this is his only connection to home and Earth and his mom that he just guarded it really, really well, which is a little surprising given the line of work we find out that he's been engaging in. Returning to the Indiana Jones motif, Quill enters the ruin and steals a mysterious orb, but on his way out, he is ambushed by Korath, who at the time this film came out, we were meeting for the first time, as Captain Marvel was almost five years away. He's getting ready to take Quill and the orb to Ronan the Accuser, Cree Radical and Korath's new boss, apparently, who we also saw in Captain Marvel. But Quill manages to subdue Korath and his goons and escape the planet in his ship, the Milano, with the orb securely in his possession. As he flies to Xandar, the capital of the Nova Empire, Empire, which has apparently just signed a peace treaty with the Kree, he gets a call from Yandu Udanta, leader of a group of alien smugglers and thieves known as the Ravagers. Yandu is the one who, for reasons yet to be revealed, took Quill from Earth 26 years earlier. Yandu is on Morag and is not too happy that Quill took off with the orb instead of meeting him there, so he puts a bounty on Quill's head. Meanwhile, aboard the Dark Aster, Ronan's ship, Korath informs Ronan, who's not happy with this new peace treaty between Kree and Xandar, of his encounter with Quill. Ronan has promised to bring the orb to some guy named Thanos, so that Thanos can use it to destroy Xandar for him. He's about to dispatch Nebula, an adopted daughter of Thanos, to Xandar to intercept Quill before he can sell the orb. But Gamora, another adopted daughter of Thanos, convinces Ronan to send her instead, much to Nebula's frustration. We got a lot of first 
firsts in this scene. In terms of movie release chronology, it's the first time that we meet Ronan. It's also the first time we meet Gamora and Nebula. And it's the first time Thanos is referenced by name. Yeah, as soon as I heard like Korath and Ronan and the Kree, I was like, wait, Captain Marvel the sequel? The prequel? Technically, I don't know which one it would be. Quill arrives on Xandar to sell the orb to the broker, but the latter gets cold feet the moment he learns that Ronan was after Quill. Suddenly, without a buyer, Quill meets Gamora, who assaults him and tries to take the orb. As they struggle, they are both in turn attacked by Rocket, a cybernetically altered raccoon-looking creature, and Groot, a tree-like humanoid, who are out to collect Yandu's bounty on Quill. In the melee, all four of them are apprehended by the Xandarian authorities, known as the Nova Corps, and sent to the interplanetary prison prison known as The Kiln. There's some fun action in this scene, as well as some good character development stuff. We quickly establish Gamora as being deadly as hell, Rocket as being a cynical smartass, Groot as having a vocabulary limited to the phrase, I am Groot, and Quill as this emotionally stunted growth, fast-talking survivor. I'm absolutely terrible at knowing the names of actors and actresses, but there are a lot of faces I recognize here from other movies and TV shows. I'm fairly certain that one of the Nova Corp cops that picks Peter up is from one of those crime drama slash medical serial shows that I watch. And I know for a fact the one who called down from the ship played Michael Gallant in ER and Clinton Jones in White Collar. Is one of the guys you're referring to the guy when they're in the lineup who goes, what a bunch of a-holes? Is it no, no, it's when they're still outside and there's two dudes that pick Quill up off the ground. Gotcha. One of those guys is 100% in like Lone Star 911 or something, Grey's Anatomy, Flashpoint, some, you know, one of those serial dramas. Gotcha. 100%. I just don't know his name, so I wouldn't be able to look him up. On their first night in the kiln, Gamora, who's not too popular there given how many inmates there have lost someone to Ronan, is kidnapped and nearly murdered by a small band of inmates, including Drax the Destroyer, whose wife and daughter were killed by Ronan. Quill intervenes, recommending that Drax and company wait for Ronan to come to her for failing to get the orb, thus helping to save her life. Gamora reveals to Quill, Rocket, and Groot that she intended to sell the orb in order to get away from Ronan and Thanos for good. If they can escape the kiln with the orb, she promises to take them to her buyer, sell the orb, and split the profit four ways. And here we have our first appearance of Drax, played brilliantly by Dave Bautista. We get our first taste of his amusing inability to comprehend metaphor or exaggeration as he takes everything you say to him quite literally. Too much comic effect. Ronan is summoned by the Other to appear before Thanos, who is concerned about Gamora potentially betraying them and taking the orb. He blames Ronan, who has killed the Other in a fit of rage, by the way, for alienating his favorite daughter, something which he very deliberately says within ear shot of Nebula, and gives him one last chance to retrieve both her and the orb. So, yep, that purple dude in the post credit scene of Avengers is the mad titan Thanos himself. This is his first ever scene with dialogue, delivered by Josh Brolin, making his first appearance as Thanos in a cameo here. And the other was the one who was in control of Loki, right? Yes, was in control of Loki, as thanks to Ronan, he is now deceased. Rocket hatches an escape plan that involves them getting into the central guard tower of the kiln. In order to do that, he says he needs a few things, including a control badge from one of the guards, which Gamora volunteers to obtain, the prosthetic leg from one of the inmates, which Quill says he can get, and a Quarnex battery from a panel high up on the side of the guard tower. Fortunately, Groot can get this very easily. Unfortunately, he misses the part where Rocket says to get that item last, 
as it will make everything in the prison go nuts. So Groot naturally gets the battery first, thus sending the entire prison into immediate lockdown and making all hell break loose. In the chaos, Drax and Rocket are able to steal weapons from the guards to take out the heavily armed sentry drones. Gamora gets the control badge, and Quill buys the guy's leg off of him for 30,000 credits, a leg which we find out later that Rocket didn't really need. He just thought it would be funny. They all meet in the guard tower with Quill having promised to let Drax have a crack at Ronan in exchange for his help and his promise to not kill Gamora. Rocket disables the prison's artificial gravity and disconnects the control room from the rest of the guard tower and uses the sentry drones as thrusters, thus turning it into an escape pod, with which to get out of the main detention area. Once clear, they're able to retrieve their gear, the orb, and escape in the Milano. Is there no more indelible image than that of a machine gun-toting, talking raccoon shooting while perched on a giant pissed-off walking tree? I think not. <laughs> I love Drax's line, Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I will catch it. <laughs> More on Dave Bautista later, but I just love that line. My favorite line in the movie also happens in this scene, and it's Gamora when she goes, I'm going to die surrounded by the biggest idiots in the galaxy. She's not too far from wrong. I think that now's a good time to talk about the Walkman, which we already talked about a little bit earlier and we'll talk about the music itself later in the episode on the surface it seems kind of funny that quill would delay their escape so he can go back and retrieve it and to the dulcet tones of rupert holmes and the appropriately titled escape aka the pina colada song no less but think about it that sony walkman and the awesome mix volume one tape within it is quill's last connection to earth it's his last connection to his life before everything went crazy and most importantly it's his last connection to his mom. Emily, you and I love music. We talk about it all the time and how important it is to us in supporting us in our lives. In a lot of ways, that tape and the Walkman are all Peter Quill has left in his life. That he would risk recapture at the kiln in order to retrieve it, frankly, comes as no surprise to me, given all of that. I don't think you've seen this movie, but it makes me think a lot about Baby Driver, except Baby, the main character in that movie, has about 10 to 15 iPods that he rotates through instead. And Despite that, he did have a special one from his mom that, due to some situations, didn't totally work. But there are a few times in that movie that he nearly gets his team killed or caught just because he needs to find the exact right song. <laughs> or there's like a particular scene where he doesn't have an iPod on him, but he has like the car radio. And so he has to turn all the dials on the radio to find just the right song for this <laughs> car chase. I've not seen it. I mean, you've talked about it and I've heard other people talk about it. I guess I need to really check this out. I can imagine being like in the middle of a gunfight, turning the wheel on the iPod. Oh, wait a minute. I got to find the right song. I do that like before dinner. It takes me a few extra minutes to get to dinner because I'm like, I got to find the right music for dinner. There is actually a gunfight in Baby Driver and it's set to tequila. Oh, okay. I, I don't want to hum it for fear of a copyright strike a copyright thing but yes the tequila that, yep, that, that one? one okay <laughs> yeah hopefully we can get away with that Ronan and Nebula arrive at the kiln and realize that Gamora has escaped with the orb. Ronan sends ships all over space to scour for it. Meanwhile, Yondu arrives on Xandar to wring the name of his would-be orb buyer from him. Yondu kind of reminds me of Ulysses Claw. I know we haven't met him yet, <laughs> but that's who he reminds me of. In terms of just sort of his temperament, the fact that he's kind of crazy. He's or... kind of a little crazy. He's got that swashbuckling pirate, illegal behavior attitude, chaotic evil kind of guy. There's no sort of compass pointing in any direction. It's just like spinning in a circle <laughs> constantly. Kidding. <laughs> Claw always came across as more menacing to me, but Yondu came across as more deadly to me. It must be the arrow. The Milano arrives at nowhere, the severed head of an ancient celestial being that now serves as a mining colony and a haven 
and for all manner of questionable types. Apparently, they mine the organic matter, fluids, and brain tissue left over from the celestial to sell on the black market. Quill and Gamora are to meet with her buyer, the Collector, who we last saw taking possession of the Aether back in the post-credits scene of Thor The Dark World. While waiting to see him, Drax, Rocket, and Groot go to a gambling establishment to indulge in some drink and the nowhere equivalent of cockfighting, while Quill and Gamora have a quiet moment on an observation deck. Gamora tells Quill that Thanos conquered her home planet when she was a little girl, and killed her parents in front of her. He then tortured her and turned her into a killing machine. When she questions why Quill went back for the Walkman, he tells her it reminds him of his mother, as the tape is a recording of various pop songs that she used to listen to. He tries to put a move on her, but she stops him by threatening to cut his throat. Quill then has to break up a brawl between Drax and Rocket, both of whom are now very drunk. Marvel does enjoy leaning into the whole team that doesn't get along with each other dynamic, don't they? The intention was to do that with the Avengers, and... I think that sort of worked, to an extent, but I think it works better with Guardians of the Galaxy. I think you get a better sense of their different personalities in these movies, and why they shouldn't get along with each other, and I think that's part of what makes the movie so interesting. There's some serious conflict in this bunch. It also helps that it's a pretty colorful and interesting bunch of folks. You've got Gamora, who's all serious and just wants to get away from Thanos, while Peter is trying to put the moves on her, which obviously doesn't go so well. And then Rocket, we get a good glimpse of why he's got such a chip on his shoulder. He's been experimented on ad nauseum, and I'm sure that's really awful. He's probably got a bit of a Napoleonic complex too, which is probably why he's always carrying around really big guns. Um, like I said in our sort of overview, when I first heard about the Guardians movie, my pretty limited knowledge of it was that they were like an 80s sci-fi knockoff version of the Avengers. But one quote that I did like from this scene, you know, not that Peter can really talk about having friends or any lasting positive relationships, is when Peter goes, see, that's exactly why none of you have any friends. Five seconds after you meet somebody, you're already trying to kill them. <laughs> and if that doesn't explain every one of the heroes, Avengers and Guardians, like, what would? It wouldn't be Marvel unless the heroes were fighting with each other at least once. Conflict, conflict, conflict. The group meets with the Collector, save Drax, who has wandered off and forced a communications guy to make a call for him. More on that later. The Collector opens the orb and reveals the Power Stone, one of the six Infinity Stones, created at the birth of the cosmos. The Power Stone destroys almost all but the most powerful beings who wield it. Thinking she can use it to break free of him, the Collector's slave, Karina, grabs the Power Stone. It incinerates her and blows up the Collector's entire Emporium. Miraculously, everyone else inside survived. Again, I have seen this movie. I'm pretty sure this is one of the ones that I have seen all the way through, unlike Doctor Strange. But one of the scenes I do specifically remember from whenever I saw it, is when Peter, Rocket, and Gamora are arguing about what to do with the orb and essentially the power stone after the Emporium gets exploded and Rocket is like, just give it to Ronan. Who cares about the galaxy? What has the galaxy ever done for you? And Peter is like, uh, I live in it. <laughs> and like, that is 100% my opinion. Like, yeah, if I were Peter, I'd think that stuff sucked. But also, I don't want to get blown up. I do like that line, and I'm glad you quoted it because I thought about writing it down and then I didn't. But it is kind of a very good description of this team. <laughs> kind of, it's a very good way of explaining the dynamic between everyone because Rocket is just kind of, he's so, he's so cynical and so jaded. It's like, I don't even care. I just want to get out of here. And Quill, for being the goof-off that he is, still, you know, has a sense of the will for self-preservation is still strong in him. Yeah, he doesn't want to blow the universe up. As the group emerges from the wreckage, they are simultaneously confronted with two problems. One, 
Drax, in his drunken state, has called Ronan and told him where they are, in the hope of fighting him to avenge the death of his wife and daughter. Two, Yondu and the Ravagers arrive, having tracked Quill to nowhere. Ronan defeats Drax rather easily in combat. Gamora, Quill, and Rocket attempt to flee to the Milano with the Orb in three of Nowhere's mining pods, but are pursued by Nebula and several Sakaran fighters in the service of Ronan. They are forced into space where the pods were not meant to operate. Nebula destroys Gamora's pod, jettisoning Gamora into the vacuum of space. Quill contacts Yondu before going out into space and putting his helmet onto Gamora, thus saving her. Yondu promptly arrives and beams them aboard his ship. Ronan, unfortunately, gets the orb. You're making me beat up grass! <laughs> I wish I could put my finger on what it is about this cast and these characters that makes them gel so well. Maybe it's just some weird, beautiful nexus of good writing and brilliant casting. For some reason, I never really cared for the pod chase that much until I rewatched it for the umpteenth time this week. I used to have a hard time following it, but for some reason, it's a little more accessible to me now. Honestly, I couldn't tell you why that's the case. I was actually kind of bored during the pod chase scene. So far, I really enjoyed the prison breakout. I think that scene made more sense and was actually more entertaining than this scene. Oh, I agree. I think the pod chase is just a thing that had to happen. They had to check off a box for spaceships chasing each other through space, and that was the end result. Ronan, now in possession of the orb, threatens to come for Thanos once he's destroyed Xandar. So one thing that I did want to talk about that you didn't put in the sort of synopsis is this kind of mini argument that Rocket, Groot, and Drax have after the pod chase scene when they've been left behind. I don't really like Rocket. He doesn't really speak to me as a character, but I do feel some kind of way after hearing him yell at Drax about how he was going to get everyone killed over his need for revenge over the death of his wife and daughter. And I definitely understand where they're both coming from. Like, Drax is obviously overcome by grief, and Rocket is like, yeah, I see it, but you can't go and get everyone killed just because of what happened to you. And I feel like that's as close as Rocket has come slash will ever get to being maybe a little bit caring about somebody. What he said was rude, but you can tell that he means well. But I also think that it's interesting that he said that he got mad at Drax for almost getting him killed when just a couple minutes earlier, he was like, yeah, whatever, give the orb to Ronan, I don't care. Yeah, Who cares was, about the galaxy? It's like, was, well, was, which is it, Rocket? He was advocating blowing up the galaxy, yes. Yeah, Rocket's not exactly a people person, and interpersonal relationships clearly aren't his forte. He primarily cares about getting positive results that will benefit him and or his survival. And he cares about Groot, even though he grumbles at him a lot, too. He's obviously been through a lot, and he has trust issues as a result. I mean, the scene where he's drunk demonstrates that there's a ton of deep-seated pain related to the experiments done on him, related to him feeling like a freak or a rodent, as he gets called sometimes, and he usually masks that pain by acting like a jerk. Remember when we first meet Rocket, he's looking around at the people on Xandar and he's systematically insulting them. And nothing has prompted this other than him looking at them. I know people like that. I know people who sit around like on the street, you know, having lunch outside and they just, you know, make fun of people that are walking by. They act like that because they're ridiculously insecure and often it's their way of dealing with trauma, I think. Yandu roughs up Quill for a bit, reminding him how he kept the rest of his crew from eating Quill. I love Michael Rooker. They had never tasted Terran before! While Quill blasts Yandu for kidnapping him from his home. Like it's some great thing not eating me? Normal people don't even think about eating someone else, much less that person having to be grateful for it. Rocket, Groot, and Drax arrive in the Milano, preparing to do battle with Yandu. But Quill manages to arrange a truce, promising the Power Stone to Yandu if he helps them save Xandar from Ronan, and letting him know that he's got a plan for doing so. The truth, however, 
is that he doesn't have a plan, at least not much of one. He has 12% of a plan, which is, I'm assuming, a callback to Tony and Pepper having 12% of a moment at the beginning of Avengers. Ah, that's a very good point. Well taken. And he needs to convince the rest of his new friends to go along with this vague essence of a plan, this 12% of a plan, especially since it will likely result in all of them being killed. But in a last-ditch attempt to earn their cooperation and their trust, Quill appeals to their humanity, noting that, for the first time in most of their lives, they have the opportunity to do the right thing for once. If they don't at least try, billions of people, maybe more, will die at Ronan's hands. Gamora, Drax, Groot, and Rel- Reluctantly, Rocket ultimately agree to do it. I love this scene for so many reasons. First of all, perhaps more than any other sub-franchise in the MCU, Guardians of the Galaxy is about family. And as I'm sure most of us know all too well, families are messy. They love each other, but they also fight and bicker like hell, probably because they love each other. And nobody fights, bickers, and argues in the MCU as well as the Guardians of the Galaxy. And I honestly think that's one of the reasons they're so popular among filmgoers. There's something refreshingly honest about this particular group for that reason, I think. Example, that whole exchange. You call that figured it out? We're going to rob the guys who just beat us senseless? You want to talk about senseless? How about trying to save us by blowing us up? We were only going to blow them up if they didn't turn you over. Well, how are they going to turn us over if you only gave them a count of five? We didn't have time to work out the minutia of the plan. I love Rocket saying that. We didn't have time to work out the minutia of the plan. It's funny, but it's a, it's pretty realistic. It's a realistic fight. You and I have probably had arguments that sound like this before. It's funny because it's realistic. Second of all, as much as I love Steve Rogers' rousing speeches throughout the MCU, I really love Quill's speech here because it's clumsy and awkward and because he knows asking these guys to probably die for such altruistic reasons is a huge ask. But let's be honest, most of us probably can't make a speech as good as Steve Rogers, including Peter Quill. But he tries anyway because he knows that the cost of not trying will be astronomical and he uses that to convince the others. He refers to all of them as losers, most likely in the colloquial sense and he'd be kind of right about that, let's be honest. But he also explicitly talks about how each of them has in fact lost something near and dear to them, and that for once in their otherwise miserable lives, (laughs) lives in which they lie, cheat, steal, kill, and run away from their problems, they have the opportunity to give something. Namely, and please pardon me for cussing like this on our show, ordinarily I wouldn't, but I think it's warranted here, the opportunity to give a shit, for once. And it works. Gamora is the first to tell him that she's used to living among her enemies, and that for once she'd rather die among friends. Drax thinks that what Quill is doing is honorable, and that if he does die, at least he'll be able to see his wife and daughter again. Groot going along with the plan seems pretty natural. That, of course, leaves Rocket to be the last to agree to the plan, whether it be because he ultimately feels it's the right thing to do, or because he succumbs to peer pressure. We don't know, but he does. So here we get the cool explanation of the plan slash preparing for battle montage set to Cherry Bomb by the Runaways, which I'm gonna guess is probably Emily's favorite song on the soundtrack. You're wrong, but I'll let you ruminate over that for the rest of the episode to see if you can guess which are my favorite songs. All right, all right. It's a little surprising, but okay. Quill sends a message to Roman Day, the Novacore guy who arrested Quill, Gamora, Rocket, and Groot, played by John C. Riley, warning him that Ronan is on the way to Xandar with the Power Stone, and that he and the Ravagers are on their way to help. The stone will destroy anything and everything once it touches the surface of the planet. Sure enough, the Dark Aster arrives at Xandar shortly thereafter, and hovers right above Novacore headquarters. Yondu's capital ships 
Assassin fighters, along with the Milano and Novacore fighters, engage the Dark Aster and Ronin Sakaran fighters in a massive dogfight over the surface of the planet. Rocket and Yandu's lieutenant, Craglin, played by Sean Gunn, James Gunn's brother, managed to blow a hole in the side of the Dark Aster big enough for the Milano to enter. In an attempt to prevent the Dark Aster from reaching the surface, the Novacore fighters link up and form a big force field in front of it. Quill, Gamora, Drax, and Groot board the Dark Aster. They're briefly confronted by Nebula before Drax very comically blasts her with a bazooka. That force field scene was actually really cool. That was neat, wasn't I, it? I liked when they all formed the force field and then the Dark Aster pushed it. Yeah. And so it sort of was like a... I'm thinking of when they do like a physics plane in space and they want to show you like the weight of an object in space and it sinks down mm-hmm. into it and like stretches time and space. Hello. Sorry to get uh, metaphysical here. <laughs> On a Friday night. Science time with Emily. Yeah, but that's what it makes me think of, the like stretch of time and space, except with just regular spaceships. To me, it just kind of looked like a giant tennis ball going into the net. Yeah, in like really slow motion. That shows you the level of intellectual difference between Emily and me. She's thinking <laughs> scientific time, drag things. I just thought it looked like a tennis ball hitting a net. What can I say? I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. Yandu's fighter is hit and is forced to crash land on the surface. He's confronted by a large group of Sakaran soldiers, but he quickly dispatches them with his whistle guy arrow of death to talk about music i haven't seen kill bill in years but his whistle guided arrow reminds me of the whistle song from kill bill i'll have to look that up because i haven't seen kill bill in a hot minute so i don't remember what that sounds like it's one of my dad's favorite movies and he used to actually back when there were computer rooms in houses he used to sit upstairs in the computer room and just whistle the song because it's all whistling Hmm. It's like whistling and wind chimes, and he used to whistle the song while he was, like, doing paperwork or answering emails or whatever, so... I have like a, a knee-jerk reaction to people whistling in a tune. Oh, it's my dad reading his email. Gamora attempts to disable the shielding around the part of the Dark Aster in which Ronan has sequestered himself, but she's confronted by Nebula, who has literally put herself back together. They fight for a bit before Nebula is knocked out through the hole in the side of the ship. She survives by landing on a passing Ravager fighter and commandeering it. Quill, Drax, and Groot are making their way towards Ronan, when they're intercepted by Korath and a group of Sakaran soldiers. Big fight, in which Groot spears a bunch of Sakarans rather violently. Quill does some cool stuff with his guns, and Drax kills Korath by ripping the cybernetic thingy out of his head. Ronan orders the Sakaran fighters to begin suicide dive bombing at the city below. Rocket leads a group of Ravager fighters to protect the city from the dive bombers. Ronan uses the Power Stone to destroy the Novacore fighters, thus eliminating the force field. Gamora releases the door to the command chamber, and the group enters. Quill fires Rocket's homemade super weapon at Ronan, but it has no effect. He's about to kill Drax when Rocket crashes his fighter into the command chamber. The Dark Aster begins to fall towards the surface of the planet uncontrollably and crashes. In order to save his friends, Groot sacrifices himself by encapsulating himself around Quill, Gamora, Drax, and Rocket, thus forming a protective shrubbery-like shield around them, protecting them from the impact of the crash. Rocket tearfully asks Groot why he is doing this, and he simply replies, We are Groot. So if the opening scene is my saddest scene in all the MCU, this right here is the second saddest. There you go. My two saddest scenes 
in one movie. On a lighter note, how in the world did the tape deck on the Milano and the tape survive the crash? I just gotta know. Quill, Gamora, Rocket, and Drax emerge from the wreckage on the surface of Xandar. Unfortunately, so does Ronan, along with the Power Stone. As he prepares to bring his war hammer and the stone down onto the surface, Quill distracts him by challenging him to a dance-off. With some 80s dance moves, a little Michael Jackson, a little Running Man, it allows Rocket and Drax just enough time to repair Rocket's super weapon and use it to destroy the Warhammer, separating the stone from it. As it goes flying into the air, Quill reaches out and grabs it. He begins screaming in pain as the stone begins to disintegrate him, but strangely, he's able to tolerate much of the energy pouring out of it. Peter has a vision of his dying mother once again, asking him to take her hand. He does, but it's actually Gamora who now shares the burden of the stone's power. She is followed by Drax, and Rocket, who all join hands, collectively containing the stone's power. Quill is able to focus the stone's power at Ronan and disintegrate him. Gamora slaps the orb onto the stone, closing it off. The power of friendship. (laughs) (laughs) No, but more seriously, I think this scene, Peter grabbing the stone and everyone else helping, to me is way more emotional than Groot sacrificing himself for the team. Also, they look really cool when they blast Ronan with the power stone. Those purple eyes are awesome. I will agree with you that it is more emotional than Groot's sacrifice, but it's not sad, so I still think Groot sacrificing himself is my second saddest moment. Moments later, Yondu arrives and demands that Quill hand over the stone as he promised. Quill reaches into his back pocket and hands Yondu an orb. Yondu and the Ravagers depart. As they leave, Kraglin quips to Yondu that maybe it turned out okay that they didn't turn Quill over to his father as they were originally hired to do, to which Yondu responds, That guy was a jackass! For more, stay tuned for our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, coming this fall. Drax comforts a grieving rocket who has retrieved a twig from Groot's remains. And yep, you guessed it, that's my third saddest scene in all of the MCU. Novacor informs Quill that when they first scanned him when they arrested him, they noticed an anomaly in his nervous system. Apparently his father was not of Earth, and was, apparently, of some ancient, unknown species. This is probably why he was able to tolerate the stone's power as well as he was. The group, now known as the Guardians of the Galaxy, has their criminal records expunged by Novacor, who also rebuild the Milano for them. Drax notes that while he's glad Ronan is dead, he was just a puppet. Thanos is the one he really needs to kill. So two questions. First, what is Peter? And second... I don't think I can ask this because it's related to Infinity War and Endgame, but I have a question about sacrifice. I'm sure you can piece together. I see the wheels turning about what my second question <laughs> might be. Since we're going chronologically, I don't want to like, I don't want to bring it up, but I have a question br- about Peter. To your first question, as I already said, stay tuned for our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 coming this fall. To your second question, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't say anything. Can we talk about it off mic? Yeah. You can ask yeah. Cool. I kind of think I know what you're talking about, but the thing with the thing and the other thing. Uh-huh, yeah, and the and the person. That person. The person the, who did who did the thing. The thing that did the other thing. Yeah. yeah. Just slowly forcing everyone to stick around until end game at least. Just dragging them in. It's like, "Oh, but you want to know what the thing and the thing and the person who did the thing is, right?" Coming winter 2022. Quill rereads the farewell note from his mother, who refers to him as my little Star-Lord. He finally opens the gift that she gave him all those years ago. It's another cassette tape of pop songs, Awesome Mix Volume 2. Yandu opens his orb, revealing one of Quill's troll figures, 
Stars instead of the Power Stone, which is now locked away on Xandar. The Guardians depart Xandar along with a potted sapling from Groot's twig. The sapling grows into a baby version of Groot, who secretly dances to I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. So, do you have a guess as to what my favorite song in the movie was? Well, it's written here in the notes, but I'll pretend that I haven't read them. Honestly, if I were to guess and it wasn't Cherry Bomb, I would have to say... I don't know. If it wasn't Cherry Bomb, I don't know. Uh, like, ooh, child? Well, since it is in the notes, it's Ain't No Mountain High Enough and I Want You Back. Which, funny enough, the version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough in this movie is Marvin Gaye, who we know from Captain America the Winter Soldier. Making two MCU appearances in a row, the late great Marvin Gaye. You leaned into the Motown that time. I'm a little surprised, but pleasantly so. I love those songs, too. I love that whole soundtrack. More on that later. In a post credit scene, the Collector sits in the wreckage of his Emporium with Cosmo the Space Dog and Howard the Duck. And so there we go, our plot synopsis and commentary on Guardians of the Galaxy. Here's the part where we talk about characters and actors, starting with Chris Pratt as Peter Quill slash Star-Lord. Outside of the MCU, I only really know Chris Pratt from the updated Jurassic Park movies. I mean, I've watched every blooper from Parks and Rec despite never having watched the show because I just love bloopers. I do think it's unfortunate that there are so many white boys named Chris in the MCU. <laughs> but he is a good addition, I guess. I think even though he's hired to be comic relief, he does do serious very well, I think. And I actually like the times where Peter Quill has to be serious and capable almost more than I like when he has to be funny. There is a meme out there that talks about the MCU's unholy army of Chris's. It's three of the Chris's shirtless. So that's like Chris Pratt in the kiln when he first gets taken in and his shirt's off before he gets squirted with the disinfectant dye. And Chris Evans' cap right after he's taken the super soldier serum when the little coffin chamber thing opens up and he's all buff and naked and stuff. And one of you know Chris Hemsworth's God knows how many shirtless scenes in the Thor movies. I never watched Parks and Rec, so I knew almost nothing about Chris Pratt before seeing this film. What I can say is that I think he absolutely absolutely owns the role. Peter Quill is an arrested development kind of person who was effectively removed from an environment in which he would have been properly socialized. And he plays that to a T in this movie. He's like this weird, lanky hybrid of slick badass and loserish goofball. Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind, it's like, imagine Han Solo doing penis jokes. That's kind of what Star-Lord is to me. Zoe Saldana as Gamora. I like Gamora a lot. She's a badass who's driven focused. At first glance, she may seem kind of cold, but given that her primary goal in life is to get out from under the thumb of Thanos, I think it's understandable why someone in that position would have developed such a hard edge. She's clearly not heartless. I mean, she opened herself up to join the Guardians. She tried to reach out to her sister Nebula in spite of the fact that Nebula has tried to kill her numerous times, and she puts herself at considerable risk to stop Ronan from murdering the universe. And I like Zoe Saldana in this role because she brings the necessary seriousness to the part, but she's never over the top. She's serious, but it's like an earnest kind of seriousness. She's not pretending really hard to be serious. It comes really naturally for her. And speaking of natural, did you know that Zoe Saldana is left-handed? Oh, I love a fellow left-hander. I thought you would. The pharmacist who did my vaccine is left-handed. Oh, cool. Everybody go get vaccinated as Public a services. PSA. I actually think I like Gamora better in, oh well, the only other movies that I've seen her in, which would be Infinity War and then a bit of Endgame, because I haven't seen the second Guardians movie. I know that one for a fact. <gasps> we will correct that oversight in a few months. And I think it's just that by then her character has grown and she's able to be more herself instead of how she's had to be under the thumb of Thanos and Ronan. I 
know that in the second Guardians movie, even though I haven't seen it, that we do see more growth with her and Nebula. And I'm excited for that because as a sister who has a sister, I know how it can be. (laughs) I do agree with you. I think she's even better. I like Gamora even more in all of her subsequent appearances, including Guardians 2 and especially Infinity War. I think Zoe Saldana knocks it out of the park in those two movies. But I still thought her performance here sets a nice baseline for what to expect from her. Dave Bautista as Drax. I love Dave Bautista as Drax. Admittedly, I love him even more in Guardians 2 and Infinity War, but, you know, I still love him in this. He's an Arlington, Virginia native, so he's kind of a local guy. Former WWE wrestler, former MMA fighter. When Guardians came out, he'd only appeared in, like, a handful of films in a period of, like, five years or so, but he clearly has a gift for comic timing, especially when it comes to a character like Drax, who is, for the most part, unintentionally funny. Unintentional in that the character is not intending to be funny. I've seen a few interviews with Dave Bautista. He's a really interesting guy. He's generally quite introverted, and he says that he has been for most of his life, at least until he started doing wrestling, and that he still struggles with some social anxiety. But when he interviews, he just comes across as this really thoughtful and engaged person. I really enjoyed the character arc of Drax in this movie, and that he didn't exist just to be funny. He had a serious problem and he wanted to solve it. And you can really see the growth that he had where he went from this one single-minded mission of who cares who else gets hurt along the way kind of guy to someone who realized that his single-mindedness actually wouldn't help anybody in the long run. On the topic of humor though, I do like his literalness if you can call it that. I think it's hilarious. And my only question now is, how crazy would a planet full of Draxes be? Because isn't that what Rocket says? Or somebody says that Drax's people are very literal. And I'm trying to imagine an entire planet full of people like Drax. If you and I were to visit that planet, we wouldn't be able to communicate with anybody. No, with how heavily (laughs) we rely on sarcasm, there's no way. You and I would be served better to going to like, you know, outer Mongolia where we don't speak the language at all than talking to Drax's people. Vin Diesel as the voice of Groot. When Vin Diesel records his lines for Groot, he goes into the studio with all of his lines typed out on a few sheets of paper, and each sheet is divided up into two columns. The left column has the line that Diesel actually says, which of course is almost always, I am Groot, and the right column, it lists what he is intending to say, like in English. Thus, Diesel can read the line in a manner appropriate for what Groot is trying to say or convey. There's a video of him just kind of standing there going, I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot, and he just does it over and over and each one of those means something completely different and although I'm sure his voice is processed quite a bit Vin Diesel has that great basso profundo voice that's just really great for this physically imposing character and for all the muscle that Groot lends to the story he also represents a connection to nature and a certain purity or innocence and that's why we see him you know pulling buds off of himself to give to the children on nowhere and why he chooses to sacrifice himself to save his friends at the end. I gotta say as an incredibly casual observer of the guardians i don't really care about Groot. like i get it i understand why people like him i just don't it's not that you actively dislike him you're just kind of like what's the big deal right yeah i mean it's like how i feel about star wars it's like i'm into it it's a fun romp through space but eh, you know the death star plans (laughs) luke leia i'm i can't even oh no (laughs) I'm like trying to think of more things that I could say that were Star Wars. Stop. Stop Stop digging, Emily. Stop Mm, digging. Poe Dameron. He's what I care about. I was waiting for that. (laughs) 
God, you know, I'm gonna have to do like a gag show in the future once more stuff comes out. It'll be like the all Emily hour where we talk about nothing but Bucky and Moon Knight and Hawkeye. And Hawkeye. So the people will actually know that I'm not a complete idiot when it comes to comic book geek nerd culture. It's just very specific things. Bradley Cooper as the voice of Rocket. All right, forget Silver Linings Playbook and A Star is Born. You can forget The Hangover for all I care. Bradley Cooper's performances as Rocket are the best things he's ever done. I think Rocket is one of the most nuanced characters in the entire movie, probably along with Drax. On the one hand, you know, he's this conceited, cynical, smartass, and all-around self-preserving jerk. All of that and all the funny stuff Cooper does really well. But I also think, and we touched on this earlier, that he brings considerable pathos to Rocket. This tough exterior and all the tough guy talk is just his way of covering up his pain and his doubt. And in those moments, I really feel for him. Hats off to Bradley Cooper for making the talking raccoon so relatable. I really like Bradley Cooper, although I've never actually seen any of the movies that I think people would count as his hits or like big Hollywood names. My favorite movie that he did was The Place Beyond the Pines with Ryan Gosling, but I always thought he was really good at doing these more complicated characters, and that's something that he plays in The Place Beyond the Pines really well. I still think Rocket is a jerk, but it makes complete sense when you see what he's had to go through. And I think out of all the main characters in this movie, like you said with Drax, like he's the one who's actually the most in tune with himself and with his feelings because he's the one who keeps pointing out to the others, I see that you're hurting, but what you're doing isn't helping our situation. And obviously he has trouble taking his own advice, but, you know, at least he's self-aware. He's self-aware, but I don't think he's as in tune with his feelings because I think he denies most of those feelings. He's so averse to to trusting people and it's his default to assume that everyone's out to get him that everyone wants to kill him or that everyone wants to hurt him or that everyone wants to swindle him he trusts nobody so that when he gets into a situation where he kind of has to or when he meets people that he kind of might genuinely care about I think that makes him very uncomfortable first of all and he doesn't really know how to deal with it even Groot who he cares about the most he argues and grumbles and bickers with Groot all the time well I guess in touch might be the wrong word I think he is just more aware than the others he just doesn't know what to do with that he has a very good finely tuned grasp of reality for sure he knows when he's going to get his clock cleaned he knows what he has to do to survive the scene in infinity war when he and Groot and thor departing the milano is a perfect example of that quill calls him out on it he's totally about the self-preservation and he's totally aware of his surroundings and when yeah this is not good we got to get out of here Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser. Not much to say here on my part. Ronan's pretty one-dimensional. He's just kind of there to service the plot. They needed a bad guy. He's not even really the actual bad guy. I guess you could say that. because He's you know, like a it's secondary a... bad guy. In Marvel movies, the reason that they claim their villains are not always as strong is because the real bad guys are actually the good guys fighting with themselves. Obviously, we've got a lot of that in this movie. Both internal fighting and external fighting. Michael Rooker as Yondu Udanta. You know, I'm not sure I would care for Yondu very much if not for Michael Rooker. He brings a ton of color and personality to that role. He's basically a pirate, so there's obviously a lot of menace in him. He's probably done a lot of bad things and been involved in some distasteful activities, and yet he's still willing to stick his neck out to save Xandar from Ronan and to not kill Quill outright. Admittedly, much of that is profit-driven, but I can't help but think that there's a heart in there somewhere. Although it, it may be that I've been influenced by Yondu's appearance in the second film, and I'll have a lot more to say about him 
in that review later this year. Well, I agree, though, or else he would have let those guys on his crew eat Peter, right? (laughs) I think that he is an interesting side character. I would like to know more about that whistle-guided arrow, because that's a weird skill to find out that you have while you're roaming the galaxy in a pirate ship. It's partially controlled by the blade thing on his head, just FYI. But I just wonder how you figure that stuff out. It's like when the first human found out that you could eat berries or whatever. It's like, how'd you know? Uh, (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that there are a bunch of mid-credits sequences in Guardians 2 and one of them involves someone trying to figure out how to use that arrow. We'll just leave it at that. It's pretty darn funny. Karen Gillan is Nebula. I kind of have the same problem talking about Nebula here that I had talking about Yondu because I know the growth that she undergoes in future films and as such I don't think we get a whole lot from her in this movie aside from the fact that she's angry. She's a great fighter. She hates Thanos and wants to get away from him, much like Gamora, although Nebula's a bit more discreet about it in this film. And she hates Gamora, because Thanos clearly favors Gamora over her. You're part of a pair of sisters, Emily, so you know perhaps you can speak to that dynamic more than I can, even though I have a sister. All the same, I think Karen Gillan does an admirable job portraying her as constantly pissed off and unamused, without appearing over the top, much like Zoe Saldana does with Gamora. I like her a lot more in Endgame, but I think that's only because I know by that point she's grown up and sort of, for the most part, stopped craving Thanos' approval, at least as much as she does here. I think the thing about sisters compared to brother pairs or brother-sister pairs is that boys usually just fight each other physically, while girls fight each other physically and mentally. So I think even though... They're kicking each other's butts in the physical sense. They're also constantly getting each other on an emotional level, too. And I'm excited to watch the second movie only because I know that they start to get along a little bit more. And Nebula becomes less of a grumpy robot and more human esque. Also, I really liked Karen Gillan in Doctor Who. I forgot she was in Doctor Who. Yeah. She was the, what are they called? Was she one of the companions? Yeah. She was a companion for the 11th Doctor. Nope. It was Matt Smith. It was Matt Smith. Okay. Who is, as they say in the lingo, my doctor. Jaiman Hansu as Korath. He really doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, but I just like Jaiman Hansu a lot. And thanks to him, I can now channel Korath every time I ask, who? John C. Riley as Roman Day. Honestly, I'm not really sure why he's in this movie. I mean, he's only got like 10 lines in the entire film. If you really want to see a great performance by John C. Riley in a Disney movie, I strongly recommend the Wreck-It Ralph movies, as he voices the titular character. You really want that Wreck-It Ralph episode review to happen, huh? <laughs> I do. I do. Both of them. We had to review both of them. But you need to watch them first and like watch them in earnest without necessarily taking notes and so forth. Glenn Close as Nova Prime. You know, it's great to have someone of Glenn Close's caliber as the veteran actor in this Marvel film, but she's got so little to do, and that's really disappointing to me. Yeah, and she isn't even really that useful when she does have stuff to do. I feel like before the big fight at the end, she was mostly just groveling for help, and then when it was time to take a stand, it felt like other people were making the decisions for her. Yeah, she doesn't do anything. It's not even like exposition, for the most part, that she's carrying out. I mean, she kind of talks a little bit about, oh yeah, well, Mr. Quill, your father is not of Earth, and you could have given that a line to anybody. Benicio Del Toro as Tanelir Tivan, a.k.a. The Collector. It's a small role, but I really like Benicio Del Toro in this role. He's just so creepy and edgy and mysterious all at the same time. It's like the one role in this movie that almost demands being a bit over the top, and I think that works for The Collector. It's not like Del Toro's going crazy over the top, but just enough to keep the audience's interest, given how small and otherwise forgettable the part might be. Don't we see him again? Doesn't he show up in Infinity War? He shows up 
very briefly in Infinity War. That's correct. He is pretty weird, though, so I do like that. I don't have he's, much else to add except that yeah. he's pretty weird, and I like pretty weird guys. So not pretty, comma, weird. Pretty weird. Like, <laughs> as a descriptor, like, that guy's pretty weird. Josh Brolin as Thanos. Thanos is a jerk. First of all, obviously, the whole destroying planets Mad Titan thing makes that pretty clear. But also, just like interpersonally, he's not a nice guy. He's rude to everyone who even considers helping him. And the only reason they stick around is because they're scared. Obviously, I'll have a lot more to say about him in the future. And I have some opinions, TM, about (laughs) his plan to save the universe or become the king of it or whatever. I don't like him. When he says that bit when he's talking to Ron and he talks about Gamora being his favorite daughter in front of Nebula, do you think he just doesn't care that Nebula is there and just wants to say what he wants? Or is he deliberately trying to stir the pot between them for some kind of sick, twisted reason? Oh, I don't think he cares. I think he knows full well that it's hurtful, and he just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He's a manipulative, mad king. He knows what he's doing. Can't let this podcast go without talking about music for a minute. I think Tyler Bates' score for this film is kind of meh. I like his score for Guardians 2 a lot more. But let's face it, the musical stars of this film are the 60s and 70s pop songs in the soundtrack. That album, Guardians of the Galaxy Awesome Mix Volume 1, made it to number one on the Billboard 200 that year, and it was the first soundtrack album consisting of previously released songs to ever do that, which is something I just found out fairly recently. It was the second best-selling soundtrack album of 2014. Emily, can you guess what the best-selling soundtrack album that year was? I've thought about this all day, and I don't think I can. I'll give you a hint. The best-selling soundtrack album of 2014 was also for a Disney movie. A Marvel movie or a Disney movie? A movie ultimately produced by Disney. Mm, Nope. I don't know. I'm going to keep asking you. I am not going to let it go. Oh, Frozen. How did you guess? It's not like I dropped you tons of hints or anything. Yes, Frozen was the number one soundtrack album of 2014. Guardians Awesome Mix Volume 1 was number two. Anyway, James Gunn handpicked all the songs himself, and he made sure to place them in the movie where they would be meaningful, and I think he does a great job of that. You know, we've got Escape, the Pina Colada song during their escape from the kiln, and Peter's going into the temple to retrieve the Power Stone. You know, he's listening to Come and Get Your Love. That's all deliberate placement. The juxtaposition of those old pop songs with a futuristic sci-fi action flick set in space was, I thought, quite quirky and original. I think it gives the film a lot of character, and as someone who's a fan of music of that era and obviously gun picked songs that would have been popular when meredith quill was younger i love this soundtrack and i played it to death when it first came out although again i do admit i do like volume two even more awesome mix volume two is really good and i guess that's everything for guardians of the galaxy another review in the can stay tuned next up in a few more weeks we will be moving on to a pretty big movie avengers age of ultron you and i have talked about age of ultron before we have all sorts of feelings about this we'll see if we can say anything nice about it we will air them out rather publicly in three weeks thank you for joining us everyone thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this review of guardians of the galaxy and we will see you in a few weeks until then thanks and good night have a good night Thank you.